I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about the state of play regarding meat production and food security in the United States, I've brought on with me my colleague, Caitlin Welsh, who is the director of our food security program here at CSIS. Caitlin, thanks for being here with us. Andrew, I just want to say thanks for having me today and thanks for highlighting this really important issue. Just to put this in a historical context, how does today's crisis compare to recent crises? Absolutely. In my experience in working on food security issues, I've never seen such coverage, such attention to this issue within our own country. Um, so this to me is a peak time in, in national and, and media attention to this issue. The last time that there was such media attention in my experience was in 2007, 2008 with the global food price crisis. The major difference between these two crises is because that crisis was because of a shortage of supply worldwide and because of increases in prices. Um, there are a number of factors at play at that time a number of factors that led to decrease in production of of certain staples around the world, and then an increase in prices. uh, At the same time, there was high energy prices. At the same time, you had countries putting in place export bans. All those things led to to that, that particular crisis. What we're seeing today is not a crisis in supply. It's a crisis of all other forms. Um, And what I think that is so interesting about this is that it illustrates that food security does not equal availability of food. To have food security, you not only need to have the, amount of, the, the right amount of food available, but you need to have everything else in place to make sure that people can access that food and they can use that food for proper nutrition. So right now, again, we're not seeing a problem in supply of food, um, as we're hearing every day on the news. We're seeing a problem at, at many points in that chain. And I think that in the U.S., this is bringing to light vulnerabilities that I think we should have been aware of, but probably weren't. And then around the world, the response that, we, that we've been taking around the world to increase global food security has been about increasing production as a response to the 2007-2008 crisis. Right now, I hope that the world takes a second look at this because increasing productivity is not going to lead to more food security around the world. It's going to be making sure that urban consumers and markets can access those markets. It's about making sure that ports remain open so that global trade can continue. It's about, as I said, many other things apart from simply increasing the amount of food available. Caitlin, there was a 2015 national intelligence estimate that reflected on food crisis. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how that fits in with this historical context? In 2015, the intelligence community issued an intelligence community assessment on global food security. And it's not often that the entire intelligence community comes together to issue a unified assessment on one particular issue. And the findings of that assessment speak to the crisis that we're experiencing, not only around the world, but actually in the U.S. today, I think. Bottom lines assessment, they said, we judge that the overall risk of food insecurity in many countries will increase not only because of production, but because of transport and market disruptions. The intelligence community said that simply growing more food globally will not lead to more food secure countries. And they said that we have a reliable large body of reporting that correlates the effects of food supply disruptions, lower purchasing power, and poor policy choices with higher food insecurity. And I think that that's a key takeaway for us right now is that simply growing food more globally and within the United States will not lead to better food security. 
What is the state of play as you see it now regarding meat, plant closures, and their effect on the supply of meat nationwide? We know that Costco, for instance, um, is placing some limits on the amount of meat that people can purchase. The same with uh, Kroger, grocery stores. What's going on out there? Yeah, that's a great question. As of today, we're seeing that approximately 10% of meat processing plants were offline. That was the, the latest from Bloomberg. Um, that means 22 meat packing plants closing in total over the past two months. Uh, when it comes to the, the supply of food in the system, staggering number is 700,000 pigs across the, the U.S. can't be processed each week. Can't be processed. Can't be processed, exactly. Okay, so that's per week? Per week across the country. Research out of Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota is reporting that uh, just one main plant is going to be able to euthanize about 13,000 hogs in one day. And normally that one particular plant can slaughter and process 20,000 pigs in one day. But because of uh, disruptions in the supply chain, instead we're euthanizing 13,000 in a day in one plant. And, and what happens after they euthanize the hogs? Yeah, after they euthanize them, the carcasses are sent to landfills and essentially buried. And I think that, that that's a, a good question that lends itself to some s secondary effects of this are essentially uh, increased waste and pollution caused by not only um, decomposition of carcasses, but also dairy products that farmers are, are forced to spray or to pour down drains, et cetera. So here we are thinking we're helping the environment in one sense by shutting everything down, but this is a, a case where our lack of production could be hurting the environment. Yeah, absolutely. I think that once we have this crisis in the rearview mirror, I think we're going to be able to, to do a full assessment of the environmental health and economic impacts of, of what we're seeing on farms today. So what's causing all the meat plant closures? Yeah, so uh, I think that this is, it's quite interesting. It's not that the companies are going out of business. Instead, um, it's simply a matter of, of illness of, among workers. Um, and this is highlighting a, a challenge in the food industry across the board, um, which is worker safety. Again, as of yesterday, the latest numbers, staggering, as I, as I mentioned before, there have been at least 9,300 reported positive cases of COVID-19 tied to meatpacking facilities. And this is a nationwide problem. This is happening in 164 plants in 27 states. And then we have worker deaths. So there are at least 40 reported worker deaths in 21 plants in 15 states. So it's essentially, it's not because the plants themselves aren't operating um, appropriately. It's simply because their workers are getting sick because worker protection hasn't been as strong as, it, as it's needed to be. How do you make these plants safer for workers? I mean, the way we think of these plants is workers really working in such close proximity to each other, side by side even. How is it possible to make it a safer environment and still get the kind of production that or, or something resembling the production that we're used to? Yeah, I think that the steps that we would need to take would ultimately lead to downticks in production at at, um, at these facilities. They would mean, for example, spacing out workers so that they're not located just simply feet from each other, but so that there's more space between workers. That essentially means a slowing of the process and less product out the door. But if you need to protect worker, worker, worker health, that's what you have to do. Also, it's important to have materials about things like hand washing and things like that in multiple languages to account for the, the number of languages that uh, that these employees are speaking. And then I think ultimately speaking, people are talking about it's things like 
employees living in close quarters, where not only are they are they working close to each other, but they're living in close quarters, so the transmission of the coronavirus is much more is easier. Now, this isn't because they're choosing because they actually prefer to, to live near each other. It's because they're not uh, they, they don't earn high enough wages to um, to be able to afford housing where they're able to afford better housing. So I think that ultimately it comes down to worker pay and worker protection in these meat processing plants. Aren't these skilled jobs though? They're semi-skilled jobs. Um, yes, and I think that's really important to note that as employees do fall ill, it's not simply a case that they can that we can just take people off the street and say come come into the plant and and you know process this carcass. On the other hand, they're they're generally low-paying jobs. The people that employ them come from immigrant communities, um, and they're generally speaking under the radar. So yes, on the one hand, they're 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 semi-skilled jobs, but the wages are not what we would expect them to be. So is this now, are we really in danger of having serious shortages of our meat supply because of this? Shortages, not necessarily. Um, I think that that's an important point where we have, we do have downticks in production and we have, as I mentioned, a number of, of plants that are offline. You're going to see less meat available um, at grocery stores, for example, because of this. But we're talking about downticks, you know, a 25% downtick in the processing of pork, for example, not a 75% downtick. So, so we're not going to see mass shortages. What we are going to see is slight increases in prices. So increases by um, in the amount of two to three percent over the year across beef, chicken, and pork. And you're also going to see a, a less variety um, in in the types of meat that are available. So um, a less variety of cuts, for example. So it, it'll be um, simpler processing methods that are used um, to give us less variety than we're used to at the grocery store. So is that something Americans can live with, do you think? <laughs> I think we can live with it. I think that we are going to have to get used to the variety that we, we became accustomed to is something that going forward, we're going to see a disruption in that. I, I don't think that it's the kind of thing that's going to be, uh, it's not going to have a long-term impact on our own nutrition in this country, but it's going to have an impact on uh, grocery stores and on prices there. So when you go to a grocery store now, people are really you know searching for chicken breast. People are searching for ground beef. It seems like our, you know, normal situation just isn't normal at all. Do you see any, you know, change in that anytime soon? Again, I think we're going to have spot shortages. I do see over the next weeks and months, I think that some of these plants are going to be coming. Processing is going to be coming online little by little. It will be a, a major uptick all at once in processing capacity. Um, I think that you're going to see plants be able to protect workers and bring more and more workers back into the plants. So I, I think that we will see, we're going to see spot shortages. And then I, I hope we'll see gradual increases in the amount of, uh, amount of meat available. What I do not predict is that people will be substituting plant-based proteins for for animal proteins immediately. Um, you are hearing at grocery stores that there are shortages of, of plant-based proteins, but they're, they're simply a lot more expensive. They're out of reach for a lot of Americans. Ground beef costs about $4 per pound, whereas um, a lot of plant-based proteins can cost up to $14 per pound. Yeah, well, I can tell you firsthand, you know, my, my middle son, who's a football player, happens to also be a vegetarian. And it is really hard to find tofu. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like there's there's a tofu shortage out there. And, you know, this kid, he's a wide receiver, so he's not a huge guy, but he's also a great chef, loves to cook tofu. And like, you know, you can't find tofu in Bethesda, Maryland these days. So like <laughs> what, you know, and I know that there's a lot bigger problems than that. Let's talk about that. I mean, there's hungry people in America right now. There's food lines. There's, you know, people standing in these tremendous lines 
in their cars all over America, we see these lines. You know, if there aren't food shortages, why are Americans going hungry? Yeah. To answer your first question about people turning to plants for, the, for sources of protein, um, I think that it, we might see Americans supplementing other forms of protein, like more beans and more legumes, for example. But the fact of the matter is that animal proteins provide one of the most bioavailable sources of protein. Um, and so it's a, for most Americans, it's a very important source of our own protein. And then you hit on what I think is one of the major challenges we're seeing right now, which is um, on farms, you're seeing farmers simply not able to get their animals and their produce to market to the point that they're needing to, to get rid of it. And at the same time, you see Americans lining up in cars by the miles at food banks and food banks unable to meet demand. And um, one thing that I think that is it's very interesting that when you, uh, number one, Food issues are in the news every day here. Uh, in my experience covering food security issues, I've, I have never seen such national coverage of this issue. Um, but number two, when you do see this coverage, the one thing that you hear almost across the board is that this is not a problem of supply, that whether you're talking about vegetables or animals or, or, or anything, it's not a problem of supply. So it's not a problem of supply. To me, it's a problem in supply chains. And it's a problem that over the past decades, the American food system has become incredibly efficient. But right now we're seeing that we're a victim of our own efficiency. So you might have farmers filling a contract for a very specific customer. And that when that customer is no longer able to purchase that, that food that the farmer is producing, the farmer is unable to, um, to switch over to meet demands from, from different types of customers. And one analogy that I've heard that I think makes a lot of sense is that our food system is like um, it's like a train station where the trains are are used to moving in one direction and very quickly and very efficiently. So from one producer to one specific consumer. But it, it's a completely different story to get the trains to move horizontally between tracks. So if you can't move to one consumer along one track, can't switch over to another track, um, it, it takes a lot more work in that direction. So let me ask you this. I mean, restaurants also are dealing with a lot of issues. Obviously, they can't open or they're open for takeout. You know, one of our favorite restaurants now that sources from local farmers says they have too much excess supply from the farmers and they started a new system where you can buy a farm box from this restaurant and, you know, each week you get fresh produce from the farm via this restaurant. I mean, so that's kind of a creative solution and they're creating kind of their own supply chain. I mean, is that what you're talking about? That is that an example of how the supply chain's been disrupted? I think that's an example of some of the creativity that we're seeing. I think that what we're not seeing is hugely effective solutions coming top down. You are seeing some bottom up solutions, and I've seen that in the area where I live as well in Virginia. You're also seeing other things across the country. So, for example, college students who aren't able to be at school right now are finding ways to to take excess produce from farms and bring them to, to food banks, for example. So you're seeing solutions like that, but across the board, we don't, we don't have one fix and it's not, there is no easy fix right now to this problem. What about the people in America who really are suffering and going hungry? People who are finding themselves recently unemployed and are standing in these lines. Nobody should go hungry in this country. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't underscore that anymore because just simply because our supply is so is so abundant here in the United States. We're seeing a lot of things happening at once. Food banks have never experienced an increase in demand, a spike in demand like we're seeing these days. For example, I spoke with a reporter who was doing a survey of food banks and food pantries across the country. She said that one, and this is certainly not the only place that's experiencing this, but one pantry in Massachusetts 
had um, the demand that they were experiencing in one week in March was 800% what it was the same week in March last year, um, simply because of the increase in unemployment in the region. So you see food banks not used to this level of demand. They're not receiving the donations that they used to receive, whether it's in cash donations or in food donations, because number one, people can't do food drives just because for social distancing reasons. Food banks also generally receive donations of food from grocery stores, excess product that grocery stores can't sell. Well, we're not seeing that these days simply because people at their um, sales at grocery stores are, are so high. So that's on the food bank and food pantry side. And then when it comes to um, to Americans' ability to, to access that food, you haven't seen the our social safety net, our SNAP benefits and WIC benefits as flexible as they should be. So for example, it's not the case that all consumers who use these benefits can buy produce online, can buy groceries online. Well, that would make a lot of sense in, a, in, in an instance like this. Also, when USDA will plus up these benefits, it's not as, as easy as it could be for states to take advantage. So for example, in one of the plus ups that we had back in March, states were able to request waivers from USDA to make it easier for those states food banks to serve their customers, but the states had to request those waivers from USDA, which of course took time. A lot of people are saying that USDA can simply issue blanket waivers to all states, which would take days and maybe weeks out of that process. What so far has been the federal response? Federal response, um, a couple different types of programs and waves of programs that we've seen. I'll say first on April 17th, you saw USDA launched the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, the CFAP, and that's a program to assist farmers, ranchers, and consumers in response to the national emergency. And there's a couple provisions there. There's $16 billion in direct support to farmers and ranchers based on losses where the market supply chains and prices have been disrupted. There's also $300 million through this program for USDA purchase and, dis and distribution. So that's $100 million for fresh fruits and veggies, $100 million um, for dairy products, and $100 million for meat products. So that's one wave through the Coronavirus Assistance Program. Then on April 24th, you had APHIS, uh, USDA APHIS, which is the Animal and Plant Health Ex Inspection Service. They established the National Incident Coordination Center in order to provide direct support to producers whose animals can't move to market as a result of processing plant closures. And what this program does is identifies potential alternative markets if a producer is unable to move animals and, if necessary, to advise and assist on depopulation and disposal methods. Those are some programs launched by USDA. You also have some other programs in place. So, for example, also at the end of April, CDC and OSHA issued guidelines for meat processing workers and for plants to um, simply for best practices for worker protection, worker safety at these places to help get these plants back online. So what would you, if you were grading the federal response at this point, how would you grade it? And what would you suggest, you know, as, as someone who's worked in government at the highest levels on this type of policy, what would you suggest the government does next? Yeah, uh, the grade I would give would be incomplete because I think that the response so far has been incomplete. I think that I would have liked for the federal government to have anticipated the challenges because of the inf inflexibility in our system to have anticipated the amount of loss in farm produce and through animal depopulations and ways to divert that that the surplus that we're seeing on farms to American citizens who are needing them the most right now. I would have wanted a plan in place for that contingency and also far more, um, far more flexibilities for people who are relying on SNAP and WIC benefits. In addition to that, simply more consideration for food banks who are seeing um, demand that they've never experienced at the same time that their supplies are, are dwindling. Caitlin, do you have any final thoughts about where the crisis is headed? 
I think that slowly things are going to start to look better. You see the number of animals that are being depopulated is shocking. You also see that um, that that's it's falling. The amount of waste um, of vegetables and fruits, for example, is shocking, but it's falling a little bit. You see meat plants capacity coming back online slowly. Um, so I think that things are, will slowly start to get better. The optimistic side of me says that this is a time for innovation, uh, simply because our food system here in the United States is so efficient and we have so our agricultural technology is the best in the world and simply our, our technology industry is also the best in the world. So I'm hoping that this is an instance where we can, um, we can think of solutions for, for the next time a crisis hits. So that as soon as it hits, we don't have to wait a long time. We don't have to see food go to waste and people go hungry. Caitlin Welsh, thank you very much for helping us get to the truth of the matter on an issue that we're all facing and struggling with at one level or another. Thanks again. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 